Welcome to On DOD on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. Now, your host, Jared Serbu. And glad you're with us this week. As you may have noticed, we've been spending a lot of time on this program over the last few weeks on cloud computing. One reason, frankly, is there's a lot going on in DOD in that particular area right now. The Cloud Executive Steering Group, of course, at the Office of the Secretary of Defense level has captured an enormous amount of attention as they work toward what's expected to be a very large, possibly up to 10-year contract award, even though the CESG has released almost no information about what it's actually up to. But in the meantime, there's a lot of activity happening in the military departments and defense agencies around cloud. We're going to focus on the Navy's piece of that in this week's show. As we reported a few weeks back, the Navy is making some major changes to how its components move to the cloud. A memo the Navy's new CIO, Rear Admiral Donnell Barrett, signed back in December, devolves a good deal of the authority for cloud transitions to eight of what the Navy calls cloud brokers distributed throughout the organization, mainly in the Navy's systems commands. I reported at the time that that represented a decentralization in how the Navy's organizing for this, but as you'll hear, Barrett quibbles with that characterization. Admiral Barrett was good enough to join us for the full hour on this week's show. Later in the program, we'll talk about a new pilot program the Navy's running called Compile to Combat, aiming at drastically accelerating the deployment of new technologies to the fleet. But we'll begin with cloud computing, starting with her explanation of what the Navy is actually changing. So we wanted to have a um, limited number of cloud brokers, if you will, to help us manage throughout our enterprise um, cloud contracts um, with ver some very specific guidance on how to standardize those contracts and the language in those contracts about our operational requirements so that we have a consistently applied um, environment uh, from which we can operate and command and control our information that will be in the commercial cloud. So we didn't want everybody willy-nilly going off, you know, getting their own cloud contracts, and then we were left with sort of a, a dog's breakfast, if you will, of, of how to manage that information and the services that they have and all that. So we wanted to provide a little structure. So to that end, um, we've done a couple things. One of the things that we've done is um, developed a cloud requirements document that speaks to, you know, how we will do C2 of the cloud. And I'll talk to that a little bit uh, later. Um, but it, it also talks to, you know, how we'll manage the services there, particularly commands like Fleet Cyber Command, um, who has a responsibility from a network operations and a cyber defensive perspective to to, manage, uh, to protect our information and, and manage our information, which will be out in the cloud now, the commercial cloud. So there will be an overarching cloud contract, um, an enterprise cloud contract, if you will, um, that, that – uh, PEO EIS is working right now and going to manage for us. And all these cloud brokers should at should first have their uh, users or operators who are looking for cloud services use that enterprise enterprise cloud contract first with the standard offerings that it has, um, that the, uh, the the cloud service offerings that each of the vendors provide. And so, if they have special operational needs beyond that, that's when they would go and put you know in an addendum to that contractor an additional contract or additional cleanse on that contract where they would say, and I also need these additional services because of the unique nature of my data or something else that I need to do or or maybe potentially some other uh, services that the cloud provider um, offers that aren't 
part of the standard contract, if you will, or the standard enterprise contract. So in that construct, we have us up at the OpNav level, the S1 level, we're the enterprise cloud broker. And so we help identify those and develop those requirements, the policies, identify the resources that will be used to execute those. Um, we develop metrics um, and how the reporting will work for the, for the cloud brokers. Um, and then we would de we delegate um, our execution of sort of the day-to-day -day management of those functions um, in execution to the executive agent, which is uh, Program Executive Office for Enterprise Information Systems, PEOEIS. So PEOEIS would do things like uh, they would do delivery of an enterprise commercial cloud contract itself, um, being an acquisition organization. They would follow all the policy and governance and rules. Uh, they would enforce that with those cloud brokers um, that we've identified. Uh, they would uh, onboard kind of any new enterprise commercial cloud services uh, that the cloud vendors provide, you know, or come along after the contract. They would, uh, uh, as they we we anticipate the cloud broke uh, vendors will continue to add great capability that we're going to want to leverage either from a cybersecurity perspective or from a um, data analytics perspective. And so we're going to want to leverage those new tools as they come aboard. So part of the thing that that the executive agent PEOEIS would do is help us get those capabilities on board where people could on that enterprise contract where people could uh, um, select them. They would do things like um, also arrange for training um, because it's going to be really important that not just uh, training for the people who are managing the contract itself, but for the application owners. So how to migrate their apps, get them cloud ready, how to secure them in the cloud because, um, you know, a lot of the in intrusions we've seen so far are not with the cloud provider's infrastructure itself. It's with the improperly configured third-party application that's in that portion of the cloud. So we want to make sure our, our application owners are well trained in how to um, manage their cloud. Uh, efforts or applications in the cloud. So from everything you just said, it, it's actually slightly a decentralization of where the Navy was as of a couple months ago, because uh, up until up until this point, PEOEIS had been the sole cloud broker for the entire Navy. So maybe you can talk a little bit about why the Navy decided that was not the best approach and what a, a little bit more about where, what the seams are going to be between the responsibilities of EIS and the syscoms and other field level or I guess S2 brokers. Yeah, so it might appear at first blush that it's a de it's uh, uh, decentralized and um, uncoordinated, but it's actually very centralized in that the standardization for all the things like the cloud hosting approach and uh, the common standards and how we will command and control the cloud and how we will do common RMF practices and inheritance for uh, the accreditation pieces and how we'll do portfolio management um, and some of those kind of things, those are actually all going to be set as standards for everybody to comply with the same way. So there, there is a lot of centralization of the policy and how we will expect everybody to operate in this environment. The decentralization approach is just because each of these kind of areas, the domains, they each have unique um, understanding of their databases, their information, their applications. So NAVC, NAVAIR, NAVSUP, NAVFAC, Military Seal of Command, Strategic Systems Programs Command, those are the folks that would be the cloud brokers, and they have a unique understanding of their environments. So they're the ones who would say, yes, I'm good to go on the enterprise contract. I don't need anything addition. Or, yeah, I need to be on, on the enterprise contract, but I also need this extra thing for this user group that I have or the operators that I have here that have a unique requirement. So that's where we're trying to give the flexibility to those a couple echelon, uh, several echelon, two commands um, to have that. Now, 
if it's not you that's a cloud broker, you can go to any one of those other cloud brokers to get your services if you're not identified as one. But we picked sort of the big ones that have the majority of the applications in the Navy. Yeah, and that sort of mission-specific focus totally makes sense to me. But let, let, me, let me just raise one concern that comes to mind, and then you can tell me why it's <laughs> why it's unfounded. In the way, of, way I think about this is, look, the, the, the Navy and the Marine Corps really over the last 20 years – via NMCI, via data center consolidation, you guys have really done a lot more than the other mill depths, I think it's fair to say, at getting the whole organization to behave like an enterprise from from an IT standpoint. So it seems to me like, and this is a balancing act, right? But one of the risks here might be that if this isn't handled right, you you lose some of the goodness in that. The more the sitcoms have the authority to do their own thing, the more this enterprise starts to fracture and to fragment around the edges. So, I mean, is everything I just said a reasonable way to look at things? Well, I think it would be if we didn't have some controls in place. So for one thing, for example, if you are going to deviate off the enterprise contract, you have to come and tell us why you're going to do that first. And mm. we have to agree with that. You know what I mean? So it's not just like you can just deviate at will, right? You have to show us why the enterprise contract doesn't meet your requirements, you know, uh, because frankly, there may be something that they identify that they need that everybody else would need on that enterprise contract too, in which case we could then secure that offering for, through PEOAS on the enterprise contract for everyone. So I think that um, there could be a concern that that might happen, but I think some of the controls we have in place for when people want to deviate off an enterprise contract um, and the requirement for them to articulate why that's, a requ- you know, why that's needed um, will help us kind of keep that in line. So people, I think, will find that the enterprise contract will have probably 95% of what they need. I wouldn't imagine there's too much that they would need that would be outside of that. Hmm. To the extent the, the, the syscoms and the other brokers do go out and set up their own vehicles, are they mainly just going to be responsible for their own functional areas, or do they start to specialize maybe in, in ways that then become available to the broader Navy? Like, I, I'm making this up, but let's just say, let's say NavAir turns out to be really good at, at contracting for machine learning platform as a service type capabilities. Do, do they then become like a, a, a center of excellence across the Navy for a focus area like that? Yeah, I mean, they absolutely could, and that's actually great, a great idea, frankly. We may steal that from you. Um, uh, that's a, it's a great way to look at it, and um, dependent upon the expertise in those areas, they may have a specialization that they would sort of be the leader in, and we would want to leverage that because anybody can go to any of these um, cloud brokers to get the services that they want if, if the enterprise contract didn't fulfill their requirements, right? So they could go to any of them that they want. So even if, for example, you were at NAVC in the future and – and NavAir was an expert in, like you said, machine learning, and your project was related to machine learning, you could actually work that contract through them. You know what I mean? So we think there's going to be a lot of flexibility to do that. But again, what I would say is I think the additional contracting that they would do would be less going out and buying new contracts as opposed to helping their application owners to work within and live within the enterprise contract and how to migrate their apps and how to keep them secure and how the metrics are sort of more the maintenance and sustainment of their application once it's in that environment. Rear Admiral Donnell Barrett is the Navy's chief information officer. We'll come back and talk more about how the Navy is reorganizing itself to hopefully make some progress toward its cloud-first policy after a short break. This is On DoD on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 a.m. I'm Jared Serviu.
Back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM, this is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. Rear Admiral Danielle Barrett is our guest this week. She is, of course, the Navy's chief information officer, technically the Department of the Navy deputy CIO for Navy Matters. We've been talking about the changes the Navy's been making to its cloud computing policies, giving more responsibility to eight newly designated cloud brokers across the organization. And Admiral, we should probably um, step back for just a minute, actually, and talk about the Navy's cloud-first policy because a lot that we're talking about right now is predicated on that. Broadly, how do you see the policy, and and to what extent are there exceptions? I mean, it's cloud-first except for or unless. What, what right. are the things that don't make sense as of now to move to a commercial cloud? So for now, I mean, our memo came out under the last uh, deputy um, chief information officer for the Navy, Ms. Haith, um, back in February of 17. And, you know, the policy basically said, hey, cloud-first strategy, you know, move things to the maximum extent possible, and that's up to secret, right? Um, and so what we're looking at is, you know, the advantages that we can have in the cloud that we won't necessarily be able to get, you know, having stovepipe applications and the advantages of being able to use data in ways that we don't today by having um, data analytics run on large portions of our, our information that could then be combined in web, web services that we don't do it that way today. But they, we, we see a lot of power and a lot of advantage from an operational perspective to do that. So I think that the way that the um, uh, cloud-first policy is, is it's going to be a do-no-harm. So there may be information that we say, okay, you know what, even though I could move it to the cloud, I don't have a good track record on commercial cloud yet. I mean, they haven't been out there for 30 years doing this where they've got an impeccable track record of getting it right. You know, they've only been at this a couple years. So, you know, there, we have a little bit of uh, deliberateness that we're doing in moving what we're moving to the cloud. So maybe we don't move uh, command and con- uh, nuclear command and control data, for example, or ballistic missile defense data. Maybe there's certain things we say, okay, let's see how it goes with these other applications and these other databases first, and everything goes well. We have the confidence. We know how to see to or command and control our information in the cloud. We know how to do incident response or hunting of an adversary or whatever those functions are that we need to do from a network operations or defensive cyber operations perspective. Um, Once we have the confidence in that, then we may move those last few sensitive applications that that we were concerned with. Or we may never move some of those to the commercial cloud. They may go to a military cloud, Uh, maybe uh, what the military cloud provided by DISA, for example. So, again, those decisions will be made based on the nature of the data and the application owner, the information owner, and the mission. Um, But our intent is to move, move most of what the Navy has to a commercial cloud environment. And is there an explicit preference for commercial vice some kind of on-prem solution like like a mill cloud or something? Well, I think the um, advantages we can get in the commercial cloud, I, I personally believe that the, the rate at which capability will be added because it's driven by a much larger market than DOD, right? The rate that capability will be added and cybersecurity enhancements will be added will probably exceed what we could do in the military. That's not to say that the DISA's mill cloud is going to be insufficient to meet needs. I just don't know if it would be the best platform in the future as capabilities are rapidly added in the commercial cloud. Um, I'm not sure they can be rapidly added in the same uh with the same agility in the military cloud. Mm -hmm. If they are, okay, that's great. But again, not a lot of track record either with the military cloud or with the commercial cloud to know what that rate is, but um, that's just uh, what I suspect. Yeah, and as you you suggest, it's probably, correct me if I'm wrong, too early to know exactly what the ratio of things that end up in the commercial cloud is going to be, but let's just say at some point it's probably going to be more than half, something like that. 
whatever it is, the implication of really everything we're talking about is that NMCI probably looks a lot different 10 or 15 years from now than it does today. It's probably a lot more focused on kind of stitching together a whole bunch of these cloud services and making sure that data is available to everybody who needs it, kind of wherever they are, and a lot less on the kind of infrastructure that you need today to host and process data. Is that about right? Yeah. I mean, the more we look to industry to buy services as uh, and not not pay for infrastructure, you know, to buy services and to have everything um, in an environment, a virtualized environment, then that it will change. I think the footprint of what we know NMCI or NGEN to be in the future. Um, so as you you get to a, a true web service environment where you are decoupling data and application and presentation from the hardware, right? And you're just using shared infrastructure to do that. Um, And then you can tap into authoritative databases with your web services to combine those data however you need them in whatever cloud they're in. Then you don't need, you know, lots of boxes to do that anymore, right? Like we have today. Mm -hmm. Um, Applications, servers, and things like that that are unique to a specific application. We'll get away from that kind of infrastructure. We'll still always need infrastructure for end-user devices, whether those are a mobile device or a chip in your head. Who knows what it will be in the future, right? (laughs) may not be the computer on your desk, right? Um, But whatever that end-user device, there will still need to be some sort of provider of that infrastructure for network operations to be able to access the information. But the way the information is then um, served up to you will be from a different infrastructure than we know today, I think. Let me go Does to that an- make sense? Yeah, it totally makes sense. And let me, let me go to an- okay. another sort of big picture question. The, the discussion around moving to cloud and, and even especially commercial cloud has been, let's say, in progress for, for many years now. From your perspective, just a Navy perspective, what have been the main barriers and what barriers really still exist at this point that, that have kept you from moving as much as you might have otherwise moved by now to a, to a commercially hosted environment? Well, I think two things. I think one thing that uh, industry has done recent, recently, and by recently I mean in the next, last three years, is really put an emphasis on making sure it meets U.S. government requirements, not just DOD, but U.S. government requirements for accreditation mm-hmm. and certification of their cloud environment, both the infrastructure and the software as a service. Um, so they've done a lot of really great work, a lot of companies have, to get their infrastructures and their um, software and their environments um, approved for you know, uh, in accordance with uh, risk management framework and, and the security requirements that the government has set out in FedRAMP and those kind of things. So I think that's one change. The second piece of why we haven't moved faster, I think, is that we have a lot of applications that aren't cloud ready. I mean, aren't even cloud ready to go into any cloud environment, mill cloud or commercial cloud. And so it's going to take time and development effort to get those to be ready in that environment. And we would like to see them go to sort of that web service environment I was talking to you about in the future and not sort of not pave a cow path with, you know, taking an old legacy application, spending a lot of money to just tweak it and make it cloud ready and stick it out there, but then you're still not getting the benefits of, uh, you know, a web service, a true web service environment. And we would like to see them modernize that way, but again, they not, that's a, that may be a bridge too far for them right now, you know, in the next two years, if you will, uh, but that's where they need to get to. Um, in the interim, we have to look at, okay, which which environments, which applications, which data make sense to move to the cloud from an investment perspective to do that now, um, or from an operational perspective in that, I, hey, I need their information out in the cloud because of the data analytics I can get on it that I can't get, you know, having it being a stovepipe application on NMCI now, for example. So, so some of those decisions are based on, 
you know, operational requirements. Some are based on, you know, what makes sense fiscally, and then, you know, what can we retool or get to the cloud, get cloud ready, if you will, um, in the time frame that we're looking in. Rear Admiral Danelle Barrett is the Navy's Chief Information Officer. She's back with us to talk more about cloud and a new project called Compile to Combat after another brief break on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. This is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbia. Thanks for listening to federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. Getting back to our conversation now with Rear Admiral Danelle Barrett, the Navy's Chief Information Officer. We've been talking about changes the Navy's making to its approach to cloud computing, including the new cloud brokerage role that's now been given to the CIOs at eight separate commands across the organization. And Admiral, before the break, you mentioned that one of the main functions of these brokers is going to be to help their own customers get their applications cloud ready. On the applications point, I mean, there are some other parts of DOD that have taken a more, I almost said heavy handed, but that's more pejorative than I really mean, um, but that, that, have, that have been prescriptive about it. Let's just say that, that have said things like, okay, the data centers are closing. You need to find another place to keep your stuff or, or that application is going away. Uh, Transcom, Army are, are ones that come to mind as, as organizations that have done some variation on that. Is the Navy at a point where, where you need to start thinking about approaching things in, in, in a more prescriptive way rather than letting people modernize their applications or decide if they want them on more or less their own timetable? I believe that, yes. I, I think that we do need to be a little more prescriptive in our development environment and in our how we field capability. So, for example, uh, the Compile to Combat uh, in 24 hours um, uh, effort that we're piloting now for the Afloat environment is being more prescriptive about, hey, if you want to exchange information in the Afloat environment, this is what we need you to do to make it most efficient, to make it agile, and to make it secure. Um, and we don't need you to be developing anymore these big monolithic applications where you want to come drop a server on us, you know what I mean, on the ship. Um, and so I do believe that being more prescriptive in, to some extent will be helpful. I mean, when you think about how Apple does the Apple Store, I mean, they just don't let everybody develop willy-nilly. I mean, they have some certain standards. And if you meet them, it goes through their automated testing and your apps get out there. We want to have that same kind of agility and the same kind of improvements in cybersecurity that you get with that kind of environment. However, we also don't want to make it so prescriptive that it inhibits innovation or inhibits the ability to build things in the way people need them to operate. So there's a fine line there, but there, I do believe that the environment does need to be more prescriptive than it is today. Another thing that, that kept coming up at the West Conference in a panel of the, the Syscom CIOs was that beyond the application issue, there's also just a network infrastructure here that's got to be dealt with because... NMCI as it exists today, as it's architected today, really isn't optimized to work in a cloud environment where you need super high availability, you need really fat data pipes, you need the kind of resilience that's going to allow you to get to your data wherever it is if it's no longer hosted with you. So is there is there an explicit plan to tackle that problem? And do, do you have kind of an assessment of how big that problem is? 
So I don't have an assessment of how big the problem is, but there there will be the issue of concern of bottlenecks and things like that. Now, PEOEIS and the folks working the follow-on to the NMCI contract engine are looking at that. So when we have all of our data moved out to cloud, well, how much data is that and what is that going to look like? So they're the ones that are working sort of any kind of modeling um, and simulation about how that would work uh, in the future engine environment because the current environment wasn't built for that kind of uh, transport right now necessarily, although there's a very capable transport on NMCI. In some locations, it may not support that kind of volume. So we do need to take a look at, and as we migrate applications, will the environment of the folks who need to access it be able to do that from, from the existing infrastructure they have, or would they have to wait a little bit, and then in which case we would wait to move that application to a later date when the infrastructure is upgraded. What's And you've hit on some of this already, but what's the Navy's big picture vision of what having a more cloud-centric environment gets you? I mean, it's it's probably cheaper to operate in the long run if everything goes well, but there seems to be quite a bit of agreement lately that that cost really isn't the main point anymore, that there are more important reasons to go to the cloud. So what is that for you? So for me, it's never been cost. I mean, I know that's heresy when you work in the Pentagon, right? But, But for me, it's been operations. So the operational benefit that I will get by having all my data in the cloud, where I can do a couple things. I can have the data analytics and the machine learning piece done in the cloud. I can apply, I can have all my authoritative databases in the cloud and have that information reused with using multiple web services. You know what I mean? So it can pull from the authoritative databases, which may be stovepiped or inaccessible today. Um, I'll be able to observe what's going on with my data across the enterprise better. So from a cybersecurity perspective, I'll have better visibility on all those databases. And I'll be able to make sure that uh, patches and uh, cybersecurity uh, improvements or uh, when we have an adversary activity, that will have better SA than what I might have right now. And so I think there's a lot of operational advantages to do that, plus the ability to um, expose data to other people who may not even known it was even available. You know, And and that's going to open up a whole host of possibilities about how you can combine data in ways that we don't do today um, and have machines help us do that and find those data sources and the nuggets of how they can be combined. So I think from an operational perspective, it's going to absolutely give us an information advantage. From a cybersecurity perspective, I think it's going to be an improvement too because, um, again, you'll have better visibility on all those databases and what's going on with them than we might have today, you, you know, uniformly across the, across the enterprise. Um, and then I do think there are, we will see uh, financial benefits. Maybe not right now, um, as there's going to be an uptick in cost as you migrate to the cloud. And as we learn, you know, okay, what's the best contract? What's the what's the best way to to buy the services that we need? But again, competition within industry among the commercial cloud providers will also drive the cost down. So just like you saw with cable TV and stuff years ago, or cell phones and stuff, the service was it was. Ex- hugely expensive, but it comes down when you have competition. Is that another reason to disperse some of that contracting authority out out to the Syscom so that we're not relying on just one Navy-wide contract? I mean, are there competitive reasons to do it that way, too, or competition-promoting reasons? Well, no, I wouldn't say that because I I would say that the enterprise broker, uh, the the executive agent role that Spayware is going to have, they will probably have more than one vendor that they work with, Mm. and that will spur competition. You know, just throughout throughout DoD, you're not going to have just one vendor that does everything. You'll probably have multiple vendors that they can rely on to do, you know, 
to provide because there may be certain things that are required in that enterprise contract that can't be sufficed with one um, with one vendor. So um, I think that there's going to be opportunities for multiple vendors. However, what I, we, we don't want to see is multiple contracts with multiple vendors, right? That's why we want to have that enterprise vehicle that covers that for all the people who want those services. And again, exceptions to that not using the enterprise comp, co contract would be very limited exceptions to the rule. You really have to show why, you know, what's on the enterprise contract doesn't meet your requirements. So if their authority to do new contracts is fairly limited and it's by exception, what, what's primarily their role in the brokerage arrangement if it's not mainly setting up new vehicles? So a lot of what they have to do is, again, getting their applications ready for um, uh, migrating to the cloud. It's going to be things like um, making sure that they're that – People are, are uh, adhering to the configuration that their applications are supposed to have in the cloud, keeping metrics on um, how, how the, the information in the, that environment is behaving. Um, they're going to have to make sure that there are um, baseline configurations maintained and things like that. So there's, there's oversight responsibilities of how they behave in the cloud, the application owners and their data, that has to be managed. And that's almost too much for one organization to manage, i.e. PEOEIS, managing every single application that's out there. It's best to have the folks that are the functional area managers of those um, applications managing the execution of the cloud contract on their behalf. So it's not, not, as, it's not as important, honestly, for them to be the person who's writing the cloud contracts, because again, hopefully they're going to be using the enterprise contract, but then the execution of how those applications and information are behaving in the cloud, that's going to be where we rely on them to help out. Talking this week with Rear Admiral Danell Barrett, the Navy's CIO. One more short break here, and when we come back, we'll switch gears away from cloud, and we'll talk about a new pilot program the Navy's getting ready to run this spring called Compile to Combat. This is federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. You're listening to On DoD. I'm Jared Serbian. Back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM, this is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. Rear Admiral Danielle Barrett is with us for another few minutes. She's the Navy's Chief Information Officer. We've been talking mainly this hour about the major changes the Navy's been making to cloud computing in pursuit of its cloud-first policy. But Admiral, let's pivot uh, in, in, in the time that we have left to talk a little bit about um, Compile to Combat. I think we're still really in the pre-pilot stage on that at this point. But, but lay it out for us. What's the big idea here? Okay, so um, I just, we have an environment afloat right now that uh, I, I would say is not ideal. So, and I'll give an example, sort of like I did at the FCA conference. Um, if there's a piece of a, a data out there now, uh, let's use a, a potato as a piece of data, right? If you're a sous chef or you're a farmer, your context of potato is completely different. As a sous chef, you think of potatoes in terms of recipes and butter and cooking and, and presentation. As a farmer, you think of the context of potato being fertilizer and growing in different types of potatoes and soil and things like that. If you wanted information on a potato, you would want it in the context of your role as a sous chef or of your role as a potato farmer. If I'm afloat right now today in a Navy environment, operational environment, if I'm a potato farmer afloat, I get all that information regardless of what my role is. And I have to use my brain to sort through, okay, well, what's the information I really need to make a decision quickly? And so as you can imagine, it's a lot of, of useless information that you get in a lot of cases, not the information you need to make a, an operational decision. So if we use that 
analogy in the context of what an operational environment would look like. What I want to have is an environment where, for example, if I'm doing a, a, a transit to the Strait of Hormuz, there may be some course and speed information that I need as the tactical action officer on watch to determine, for example, when I would launch a weapon. And I may also need that same piece of data in engineering for the Chang to determine whether or not the maintenance on the equipment is appropriate enough uh, for me to achieve that course and speed, or can, can the, the plant handle that? And if I'm the navigator on the bridge, I may need that information for you know, safe passage and to make sure that, that that's the right course and speed for the ship to be on and to execute the mission. So there's, there's multiple people who may be able to use that piece of data in the context of their roles. So what we're trying to do is to break down the way applications and content are delivered to the fleet right now, which is, is very um, old school, sort of big monolithic applications, or requires a constant reach back to the shore, which you can imagine going over satellite link is really hard to do a lot of times, especially when you lose that satellite link. You're kind of dead in the water, right, With in terms of getting information. So what we want to do is use break down the, inf the, the data from the application or the business logic to, in the presentation, and then you would use shared infrastructure afloat um, to store the data there, have most of your business logic there already hosted on the ship, and then use that information on the ship without having to reach back off every time to get more information. Uh, and then you could then use the application sort of piece to, to then add you know, artificial intelligence agents in the future and to to use web services to grab data and use it in a different way based on the way you operate in your role. So we're trying to get to an environment where operationally we have a, a, an advantage with information that we don't today because of the, the old kind of legacy architecture for both data and transport that we have. So if you lost that satellite link, which is critical to us, you would have at that point probably about 80% of what you needed to continue to operate along with what you would bring in from organic sensors and UAVs and LINK and some of those other things, you'd probably have about 80% of what you needed to make operational decisions at that moment in time. And uh, now that would diminish over time unless you could, you know, get in more information sent to you other ways. But you would have a much better operational environment from an information standpoint to make decisions than you do today. And that's what we're trying to get at. And the second piece this is, will do for us is it will improve the cybersecurity because I have a lot of application and the agility for moving capability out. So if I want to update an application today, it sometimes can take up to 18 months to get that application through testing and integration testing. And by the time it gets out there, you know, it's been 18 months in development. How great would it be if I could have many web services that I could update within 24 hours? or within 36 hours and push that capability right out to the fleet, get it loaded on the ship, and they could immediately start using it and push the data out in a smart way where we can compress it and use the, the limited satellite links a little more efficiently than we do today and prioritize what information I want first, what information I need right now. So the CEO of the ship could do that in the future if we had the right data formats and the right infrastructure in place. Does that help? It does help. I'd say a little bit more, if you would, though, about the, the, the speed issue, because my understanding is you're, you're going to compress this from 18 months down to about 24 hours without really changing anything at all about the RMF process as we know it. Yes, so there's really four pieces, four pillars to the pilot. Um, and, it, and we're looking at making sure there's an end-to-end -end architecture. So one piece is the data piece, and that's standardizing on an extensible markup language, XML data, and then using efficient XML to compress that. 
Okay, the second piece is use of that shared infrastructure like we talked about. In this case, we're using Kane's infrastructure because that's what we have available available afloat now. But in the future, I mean, I envision you'll have a petaflop server out there. You know, you'll have a huge data center out there. And with storage shrinking and stuff, it's not going to take up that much space. The, the third piece of this is the automated testing and RMF piece, the piece that you just talked about. And then the fourth piece is using the commercial cloud to help us um, pre-stage the data, do the analytics and the compression, and get it out to the ship back and forth. But let's talk about that third pillar for a second. That's the automated RMF piece. Mm -hmm. So if I construct applications in a different way today where I use the shared infrastructure of the ship and I'm just doing my web service code um, for that, whatever that specific little function is you're trying to do, a mini web service, not a big monolithic application, then I inherit all of the RMF controls and all of the RMF accreditation that's already been done on that shared infrastructure. And if I use standard ports and protocols, like port 80 and port 43 web protocols, and if I standardize on my data, it's all in XML, you know, it's in the standard data format, for the most part, if I could do that. And if I'm using standard... Um, development language, sort of like we talked about how Apple says, hey, you develop this way, we'll let your, your app get into the app store and you can get it out to users. If we set some of those parameters, then what happens is that automated piece of the RMF becomes just testing that containerized piece of of additional uh, coding that you want to get your web service out because you don't have to go back and retest the environment. It's already accredited. You don't have to retest the environment in the cloud where your data are going to be analyzed and pre-staged and sent, you know, compressed for the XML and sent out because that infrastructure is already accredited. So you're inheriting those environments already and all you're doing is is taking what used to be a big monolithic application, breaking it down into these web services, these smaller services that can quickly be accredited through an automated process. And we're saying you should be able to do that within 24 hours from compile to combat if you do it right. And this, I don't know if this is too much of a logical leap, but it, it seems to me that approach does another thing for you, which is the next time you do a big refresh project like Kane's, the whole thing's a lot simpler and it may not take nearly as long because not every application is coming with its own box. Absolutely. You're spot on. And not just a box, but, you know, that's a dog's breakfast of other softwares on there, too. So you can imagine the integration testing has to go on with all that software that comes with each of those boxes, you know, and different operating systems and different uh, third-party applications. I mean, it just becomes untenable at some point. And that's why our processes now are so long to get things out because, you know, we, we have a do-no-harm uh, uh, approach to sending capability out with good reason. You know, we've sent things out before in the past and it's broken things afloat that operational commanders couldn't, can't support that, you know. So we want to build an environment where there's less risk of that happening and more ability to push that capability out quickly to reuse the data in, in for multiple roles and multiple reasons and to have as much data as you can afloat so that when you become disconnected, either because of your own, you know, maybe you've got an outage or a maintenance problem or, you know, you're in, you've got sunspots or whatever you can't, you know, you know, get your satellite access or an adversary is denying you access or you just from a military perspective want to turn your stuff off to, to lower your radio frequency signature, for example. There are many reasons you may lose that access, but if you did, at least you would have as much data as you needed to execute the command and control that you you, you have to. All right, Admiral. And just to wrap us up on this two-part question, what what exactly are you hoping to learn from the pilot, and why is the uh, uh, a float environment the the place you want to start to test this idea? 
Okay, so um, what I want to learn from the pilot is, is this, is this architecture right? Are our assumptions right about this working and this being the right way to do it? Um, we think they are, but we don't know. And this architecture isn't new, honestly. This was developed um, 17 years ago uh, by a group that uh, uh, was web wrote the Web-Enabled Navy 2.0 ar architecture, 1.0. I can't remember what it was, but this is not new. But what is new is, one, people's ability to understand this kind of architecture because of now how web services, micro-web services are done um, in the commercial world and in the smartphone in your pocket, frankly. Um, but also the technology has come a long way and the standards. So even a standard for um, uh, XML, the efficient uh, XML piece, which uh, NPS's uh, Navy Postgraduate School has pushed and gotten um, approved by the World Wide Web Consortium as a standard. Um, the standards have come a long way. The products have come a long way, how we can containerize things now. And so it's a perfect uh, uh, perfect storm of opportunity, if you will, uh, conver convergence on technology and standards and process to be able to do this now. And what I'm hoping to learn is that if this architecture is right, then this is the architecture we could use across the whole enterprise. I mean, if it will work end-to-end -end in our lowest common denominator, which is the shipboard environment because of the bandwidth disconnected issues and uh, where, where you can be disconnected at any time and where you, can, where you have a limited amount of bandwidth. You don't have an unlimited bandwidth when you're afloat. Um, if it can work there, it can work anywhere work across the whole enterprise, and it should at that point. And that's how we should do our all of our content delivery afloat and ashore. And, and last follow-up on that, but the more we hear about, you know, the future of warfare being against peer or near-peer adversaries, the, the more likely it seems that you are going to be potentially operating in more of those disconnected envi environments. Why are you not potentially Absolutely. putting yourself more at risk by relying on cloud architectures that, that we think of as tending to need constant reach back in order to just operate? So, but that's why you'll have the mini cloud afloat. And like I said, you may have a petaflop or whatever's bigger in the future, right? Um, exaflop or whatever database afloat and server afloat. And a lot of the data that you need would be synchronized and not replicated, but synchronized between that shore cloud and the afloat cloud. So, for example, if I'm CEO of the ship, I may want to order up, you know, all, all administrative data for um, you know, my 230 sailors, anything to do, any changes in the data um, for their social security numbers, I want that sent out to me every evening at 2 in the morning unless I tell you otherwise. Intel data, I'm going to need all my Intel data every, you know, 15 minutes. Um, you know, logistics data, I'm going to need that five times a day, whatever. But if the data are in the right format, then I can do some higher level quality of service and prioritization of what comes out to me and gets stored on the ship so that when I do have that link disconnected, because it's going to happen, again, either through your own problems or an adversary imposing that on you, that you have way more information now to operate. And hopefully in the future, you'll have the artificial intelligence on the ship that will help with that machine learning about how the data are being used. So it can be presenting information to you in a way that it doesn't today. You know, if I am doing that straight to Hormuz Transit, it could say to me, Hey, last time you did this, um, you know, last time you were at this course and speed going this location with this vessels around you, this is what we saw, you know, an adversary do with their uh, UAVs or their their um, small boats or, or, or this is what we saw happen. And, oh, by the way, you know, be on the lookout for that. Be prepared for that because it's probably going to happen again. So that's the environment we want. And if we can use that synchronization between the data analytics that can happen on a large scale – 
in the commercial cloud ashore and pump the critical information we need to the cloud on the ship, then we'll have that kind of analyzed information and that kind of intelligence to be able to operate off of. Rear Admiral Danelle Barrett is the Navy's Chief Information Officer. We thank her for spending the full hour with us on this week's program. Before that discussion, you just heard on Compile to Combat, we got a major update on how the Navy's thinking about cloud computing right now and some significant organizational changes that are underway now to help achieve its cloud-first policy. If you missed any of that discussion, this week's full program will be up on our website, federalnewsradio.com slash on DOD, or you can subscribe to our podcast. Just search for On DoD on Podcast One or Apple Podcasts. That's it for this week's edition of On DoD. Thanks as always for joining us. I'm Jared Serbu. So long. You've been listening to On DoD with Federal News Radio DoD reporter Jared Serbu. If you missed any part of this program, you can hear the entire show or any of our weekly programs anytime at federalnewsradio.com. On DoD, only on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. 